What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we had on Vinay Iyengar of Two Sigma Ventures. Two Sigma is a multi-strategy fund that invests from seed to Series B across a number of industries. Vinay helps lead up the San Francisco office and he focuses on early stage investments in enterprise software, machine learning, marketplaces, and infrastructure. In this talk, we discuss why now is the golden age to start a business, implications and second order effects of software becoming commoditized, and ways to demystify the job search process. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yo, everybody, welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. We have a really, really dope VC who's here by recommendation, like strong recommendation by another one of our guests, Lene Iyengar from Two Sigma. Previously spent some time at Bessemer and effectively just has been crushing it throughout his whole stint. So maybe I'll give him a chance to give us the two-minute elevator pitch on his dopeness, and then we can dive into some, some really good energy. Awesome. Thank you, Gent, so much for, for that very kind intro. I appreciate it. And thanks again for having me on. Quickly, by way of introduction, I'm, I'm on the investment team at Two Sigma Ventures. I'm based in San Francisco. I helped us open up our RSF office last year. Uh, and yeah, I guess I quickly touch on my path into venture. Um, I think like a lot of people, like everyone, my path into venture was non-traditional. I actually went to Harvard for college, intending to become an academic. I'd, I'd done a lot of math and computer science research and thought I would go on to do a PhD and spend my career in that world and very accidentally stumbled upon entrepreneurship as a freshman in college, started a SaaS company with one of my buddies that was basically a total failure, but I, I sort of caught the entrepreneurship bug. I realized just how magical entrepreneurship can be. It's like taking the innovations in science and technology out of the lab, exposing them to the world. And I felt like it was really cool that you can have sort of impact at scale as an entrepreneur that you really can't in any other field. And so I knew I wanted to work with entrepreneurs or in and around the startup ecosystem. And so I was really lucky to land a gig at Bessemer right out of college. And, and that's how I ended up getting into venture. Killer, man. You want to give us a quick like 10 second or 20 second overview of what Two Sigma is? Absolutely. So we are a $300 million early stage venture fund. So we're mostly focused on seed through series B investing. I focus largely on B2B software, but we're a generalist fund and have this overarching thesis around data-driven software changing the world. And what makes us unique is we're affiliated with a very large hedge fund based in New York called Two Sigma, which is a $60 billion asset manager. And though it's you know, technically a hedge fund, we really like to think of it as a technology company. It's you know a couple thousand engineers, a few hundred of whom have PhDs in areas like machine learning and distributed computing. And so the idea is we, we leverage the resources and expertise and networks of the broader hedge fund to help out our companies in a whole bunch of different ways. And so we are a sort of small, nimble, independent venture capital organization, but bring to bear the resources of this larger group to add value for our portfolio. 
Fire. Yeah, I, I'm from Point 72. It's a little bit different. We got some functions that are similar, but I love the, uh, I guess, the invasion of VC by the broader asset management class, just dwarfing everyone's AUM and having these big platforms to support the entrepreneurs. It's huge, man. Yeah, no, it's definitely super exciting. I think it makes our job a whole lot harder because it's more competitive as always. And so I think one of the things we're always thinking about is how do we differentiate, right? They're, they're a whole bunch, like capital, all, all money is green, as they say. And so for us, it's really a question of in all aspects of the venture process, from finding to picking to winning to supporting, it's a question of how are we different and how do we uh, do best by the companies we work with? Feel that. Yeah, I think, I think the hedge funds are uniquely positioned from a discipline structure. I love that you all know tech. That's huge. And, you know, it's funny you say it makes it difficult for us, but I'm like, yeah, I guess for you, it ain't as hard as it is for a lot of these micro funds. But yeah, for sure, man. I, so we've looked at some of your literature and for sure we want to jump around on those topics. But one that you talked about was the dem- democratization of creation, which, you know, talked a little bit about local tools and a lot of other things would love to get your opinion about some of the amplifications of it and how it's becoming easier and easier for more people to act like developers yeah i i think this is one of the most exciting and interesting broad trends that we've seen in the past five or ten years and i think at a high level that my, my takeaway is like now is the most exciting time to be an entrepreneur or to be a builder of any kind like we're just living in a golden age for innovation particularly in software, but even like in, in any sort of new business creation, right? Like, you know, if you are a, if you want to sell a product from your garage, it's so easy to set up a Shopify store and, you know, accept payments with Stripe. If you're, you know, we're seeing this emergence of the whole creator economy where now you can literally make a living making YouTube videos or TikToks. I think this has all been one of the big implications of like, this broader democratization of creation. And yeah, I think it's super exciting. And in particular, given my investment focus, I spend a lot of time thinking about low code and no code tools and and open source software. And and just this broader idea that there are now these modular tools that reduce the friction to build and ship software. So now literally anyone around the world, all you need is a laptop and internet connection, and you can build like a really sophisticated product. And, you know, ultimately build a big business from it. And so I think it, it's just an exciting trend because everyone can build, everyone can innovate, and we're seeing a plethora of really interesting products be created as a result of this trend. I'm going all yeah. script for a second, but like, I've thought about this a lot too. We couldn't get to where we are today without using low-code, no-code tools. <laughs> <laughs> like we, I, I don't develop, but Tyler doesn't either. Like we just, we tap into stuff. Hey, yo, yo, I, t- I, I took my fair share of CS classes. <laughs> I mean, no, I, I do. Like I, 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 can, I, I, can, the language, I can do what I got to do. I can't <laughs> mock up, I can't mock up anything along that same line of thought. Like what are some secondary impacts you're seeing as it becomes easier and easier for people to just create build online like obviously one is that it becomes a lot harder for distribution and it kind of like this is how i'm thinking about it it becomes harder for people to earn attention from their audience they're seeking but what are some other things that you're thinking about as this becomes easier and easier for people to build i think one of the big implications that i'm seeing is that and this applies more in the b2b software world than anything else but I think the best go-to-market strategies are winning as opposed to the best product. I think that's one of the really important implications, right? So 
historically, I feel like the best products in any given category could win. But now given that it's so easy to build a product and to be at feature parity with your competitors, it's less about what are you building? And to your point, like, how are you communicating it? How are you acquiring customers? Do you have a unique angle on that front? So I think that's certainly a big implication that I'm seeing. That makes a ton of sense. And it's like a shade last week. He said, I, it almost depends on the sector that you're operating in. Like he gave the example of dev tools where it was the opposite because like you're focusing on developers, you're getting really tight feedback loops from these developers. It seems like the best product is still winning in that subsector, but for the general market, I think you're totally right. I, I forget where I read this, but it's like first time founders focus primarily on product. Second time founders focus primarily on distribution. Cause I think you're totally right. Like distribution for most companies out there that matters 10x more than the product now. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I, I think, yeah, this mostly applies in categories of SaaS that are pretty top down and have like a very traditional go-to-market motion. But increasingly we're seeing a lot of SaaS companies have this bottoms up led motion. And yeah, I think Asha makes a great point that in dev tools, you know, best product is starting to win out more. But even in that case, I would argue that, you know, things like community matter a lot, right? Like our developer tool business is doing a good job of investing in community and having an active you know, Discord and Slack channel and responding to GitHub issues in a timely way. It's even, you know, almost like the traditional customer success metrics, like those things matter a lot as well in terms of keeping a developer community happy and engaged and ultimately building a, a big business on top of a, a dev tool. Couldn't agree more. That's super interesting. Well, yeah, sorry. That's my piece of going off script, but Tyler, no, no, that's fine. <laughs> Yo, to go off script one more time, I didn't, I was reading your piece and I did not realize that 97% of companies were using something open source and like 57% of code and commercial software is open, open source at this point. That's ridiculous. One. And then two, like that just speaks to the power of community. And two, like is if this trend continues, I'm curious as to how we actually differentiate. Do you have thoughts on like how any of uh, the companies that are coming out today could create some type of defensibility or like could be something that you'd be interested in from an investment perspective outside of just having elite product? Sure. I, I think about this a lot because as I mentioned earlier, like I do think SaaS is becoming commoditized in a lot of ways. And, and yeah, I, I do think that stat is incredible that I forgot what the exact number is, but a very large percentage of, of software today is just made up of these open source components, which is exciting, right? Because I think, as I mentioned earlier, like really exciting for builders, but also like it's harder to differentiate. I think on the business model side, like one of the things that I increasingly look for in SaaS products is network effects, which like historically, I think we mostly think of in the context of consumer businesses or social media companies where it's all about the network effects that you have for your business. But increasingly, like I'm seeing a lot of these SaaS companies that layer on a marketplace component or a platform component to their business that ultimately creates these network effects and, and gives them more of a moat. And, and a couple of ex examples of this, I think one really interesting example is in the world of vertical SaaS. So a lot of vertical SaaS companies start off with, you know, they sell software into a very specific sector or a very specific uh, end user persona, for example, you know, software for plumbers or construction workers or restaurants. And they start off by selling a subscription software and then they layer on payments. So they help these folks, you know, process payments and, and build a business. And then over time, one of the next interesting 
levers I'm seeing a lot of vertical software companies unlock is a marketplace component where they're helping these companies actually to procure supplies on the back end or connect them to customers on the front end. And so that added marketplace component for a lot of these vertical SaaS companies is one of those really key areas where they're able to create those network effects and, and build that mode over time. And then the other area that I think is interesting is a lot of SaaS companies are now trying to become platforms, right? So they open up a ecosystem for third-party developers on top of their product and have a community that's building these apps on top of the marketplace or rather on top of the platform. And then they create this marketplace element where, you know, there are more developers, which in turn create more value for the users, which in turn bring in more development on the platform. And so Shopify and Salesforce, I think are great examples of that with the sort of app ecosystems that they've built on top of their platforms. 100%. Even companies like Zoom, we had our buddy Jay Drain from Maven come on not too long ago. And he was telling us about how Zoom is becoming a platform and all these different tools being built on top yeah. of something that I would have never assumed would become that, you know? So, okay, time to pivot because we could definitely keep running through this one. I would love to ask you a bit more about the opportunity that you wrote about optimizing your actual performance monitoring within models. Yeah, definitely. I, I think one of the really fun things about venture is that you get a sort of study history and then think about how this affects the future and, and the sort of products that are going to get built in the future. So this is one of these fun projects that I embarked on earlier this year, where we looked at the history of cloud computing and what happened when software moved from on-prem to cloud. And, and one of the really interesting implications was that it birthed this brand new market called application performance monitoring or APM, you know, companies like Datadog and New Relic and Dynatrace, which are now you know, multi-billion dollar businesses. And one of our core theses at Two Sigma is that we're shifting, we're in the middle of this paradigmatic shift from cloud-based software to what we call data-driven software. So software that, you know, now you have a bunch of data that's stored in the cloud and you can build these machine learning models on top of them that automate some aspect of human brain power or manpower, right? And so I think that's a really interesting shift that we're undergoing. And, and our prediction for that is that as the shift happens, there will be a new class of monitoring companies that are born, what we call model performance monitoring or MPM, as opposed to APM. And that these companies basically, they'll be focused on monitoring models and data sets to ensure that there isn't things like data drift or data quality loss or models becoming biased over time. And so because these models in many cases will be so important for a business, they're going to be models in production that are driving really important decisions, like ensuring their quality is going to be as important as ensuring the quality of cloud software generally. And so that's definitely a thesis we've been spending a lot of time exploring and we're super excited about it. We think that the MPM market is going to be as big, if not even bigger than the APM market, and that this whole rise of data-driven software is going to be a really exciting um, trend to come in the future. All right, my, my mic in it, but no, agreed. Are there any companies that, that you want to highlight in that space before I jump to the next piece? Yeah, I mean, there are a whole bunch of companies that are working in this space that have recently gotten funded. There's a company called Big Eye, a company called Great Expectations, which has an open source approach, a company called Anomalo, which is super interesting. And so there, there are a whole host of interesting startups that are being created in this space that are all at the 
series A through C stages right now. And, and that's, an, I think, another really interesting thing to observe is that all these companies have popped up around the same time in the past couple of years. And it's almost magical to think about the efficiency with which entrepreneurs are able to spot opportunities, right? That like you see a bunch of teams in different parts of the country, seemingly independently at the same time come up with the same idea. It just, it, it's always really interesting to see that. And, and that's definitely something we've seen in, in this market, but also, you know, as a VC that I see in a bunch of different markets. 100%. Yeah. I tell my friends all the time, like, if you want to start something, you have an idea, do not wait till two years to your investing schedule bumps or something like that. Like start it immediately because I, I guarantee you someone's probably already started it. Or by the time you decide to do it, someone will have raised up like $40 million round. It'll just be too late. Or you'll have to like go into some type of war. And on the flip side of that, it, it actually makes it a little bit difficult for you as a VC because now it's so hard to choose. And sometimes you'll place a bet and then the perfect founder with the perfect team and your most fierce investing competitors pop up with something identical with an extra feature on top of it three months later. But it is. Yeah, for, for our earlier conversation, I think it's tough because it's also so much easier to build now than it ever was before, right? So maybe even if you were the first to market, that be, being like first mover advantage isn't as big as of an advantage as it was, say, five or 10 years ago, where today, like, a really sharp team can build and ship the same product at feature parity in, in a matter of months. And so yep. that's always <laughs> as an investor to think about that. And then plus add to that, the whole capital dynamic at play today, where you have, you know, these funds that can write 30, 40, $50 million checks. And so that combination of, of being able to shift software, ship software really quickly and raise a war chest really quickly is, making things super difficult yeah it's, to me it's getting to the point where it's like invest in the team and invest in the distribution play <laughs> and only make deals in, in spaces where it's not a winner take all like of course yeah. there'll be a few especially as we talk more and more about the network effect components of things but as a rule of thumb like i definitely want to be in places where like if you're in the long tail you can still be a multi-billion dollar company do you think Absolutely. that ensuring data quality and application performance monitoring as a whole, do you think that's a winner-take-all category? Do you think there's space for multiple winners here? I think there are going to be multiple winners here. I, I think it will parallel the APM market. So in APM, you have a bunch of different companies that have built multi-billion dollar businesses, right? Datadog is probably the, the biggest one, but you have a bunch of other companies that have built big businesses. And it's also been a very acquisitive space where a lot of big tech companies have, have made acquisitions. And I think this will look very similar. I think there will be maybe one or two decacorn type outcomes, but I think there will be a long tail of unicorn type outcomes as well. And if you're a series A or seed investor, like you can make money betting on even the third or fourth player in, in the market. Agreed. Agreed. Well, let's completely switch gears here. In the same thing to it being easier and easier to start companies, you know, maybe it's easier and easier to start your career or figure out like the job process. And, you know, through things like us making job boards and things like you building these job guys and all these types of things, I would love to get your take on that and maybe get a little bit more insight into what you're doing and what you've been ideating and writing about in that front. 
Yeah, I'd love to get your guys' thoughts on this as well. I think, unfortunately, while it's gotten easier to build, I actually don't think it's gotten easier to get a job, particularly, I mean, you look at fields like venture or even startups where so much of getting a job is about access. It's about your network. It's about who you know. I, I think it has remained tough. And especially if you're from an underrepresented background in tech where you, you, know, you don't have access to those right networks, it's still really hard to get a job in venture for sure. And then even to get a job at a great startup. And, and I think one of the things I've observed over the past few years is that like getting a job at a fast growing, call it series B plus company, might be the best way to launch your career. It, it, there's just been so much wealth created and these are such interesting and awesome learning opportunities. But again, they're not accessible to all young people, right? Most kids know about the big tech companies and they have good recruiting programs in place. But if you want to get a job at a really cool startup, it's still really difficult. And so part of why I wrote that job guide was very much about you know, demystifying this process and making it easier for people and, and that's really the promise of the internet and the magic of the internet is that we can democratize access to content and knowledge and even things like compensation data. That's one of the things that I, I put in that guide because, you know, you get a job at a startup and you have no idea how to value your options and you have no idea, am I being paid the right amount for this, you know, business operations job? Am I being underpaid? There's, you know, these startups don't have HR departments necessarily that are holding them accountable for things like pay equity. And so there are a whole bunch of issues that, that you know, I, I certainly am not claiming to have solved any or all of them, but hopefully the, the job guide that I put out and a lot of the work that you guys are doing, even with having this podcast and with putting out the resources that you're putting out are going to help make this a less opaque process and get more people a foot in the door. Yeah, man. I think that there's a few things at hand here. So in regards to the technical aspect of it, which is like the process of finding a job, I think that's become easier because you now have job boards, tools, recruiting, pipelines within university and in diversity programs and all these other things. And technically, it should be easier than ever to do so, right? Like even just interview processes through things like Zoom. However, we still have the same core society has faced forever, which is like the socioeconomic wealth gap, the education gap, and the concept of like, there's being a shortage of talent requiring these platforms to exist is really just based upon, you know, people going to a certain type of university or getting some certain type of training program, which still costs some money, right? So I think that people having these job guides and explaining people like what it actually takes to get from point A to like point B, what options they have in terms of engineering and tech training programs online and, you know, not having to go to Goldman Sachs or Google and instead being able to go to a series A or series B company out of college, assuming they can maybe understand the investing landscape and kind of maybe have some filter as to, cause like you think about it, like how would a 19 year old or 22 year old really know what company to bet on? <laughs> When like we as VCs get it wrong nine out of 10 times. Yeah. I don't know. I think sometimes tools don't equate with the reality of things, but we probably are generally moving in the right direction in regards to people trying. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also not to mention the whole host of sort of private venture backed companies that are trying to upend the traditional education model with things like income share agreements and 
you know, trade schools like, like Lambda school. I think that approach is really interesting. And as, as you, you make a great point that like things like my job guide are still, despite saying I'm democratizing access to information, they're still targeting a very small subset of the population. Probably like 2% of the population. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. It'd be dope if we said like, hey, here's what to do if Uber was to fully automate its fleet. You know, <laughs> what do you do then? Whoever makes that to me is like a hero. So maybe we can collab on it, who knows? But I have that well thought out of perspectives on this, but I just think that in order to get the job you want, you need to establish presence on the internet. And I think the people that consistently push out content, like rather than just relying on an employer to choose them, which is essentially like just putting all of that luck in the employer's hands, they're creating their own luck and just creating more opportunity by continually building trust with a larger range of people sharing out content that way, just like sharing valuable resources that then people can tap in. And if they're looking for a job, they can leverage it that way. I mean, all those things are amazing points. I'm thinking the takeaway here is jobs are hard. Everyone, please keep doing your part. Like we got to solve the job crisis and the climate crisis. And on the job side, like please Google as much as you can because more and more stuff is being created. And uh, yeah, let's just, let's yeah, keep it moving. Feedback for me on the job guide or anything else I can do. I'm all ears and happy to be helpful however I can. So how about Clay, you take us out on the quick fire round. Cool. Let's do it. So but now we do these at the end. We got five questions meant to be answered in two sentences or less. Uh, we're not great at actually hitting that threshold, but we try to give it. As a guardrail, first one we have is what is a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? That's a, that's a tough one. I guess one high level answer is I think a lot of people generally give advice that's a reflection of their own biases. Like they'll just tell you to do what they did. And so I think generally when listening to advice, like it's always good to take it with a grain of salt because people, I think people just tell you to do what they did. But I guess a more specific answer is I think one of the things I hear specifically about venture is that you need to have operating experience to be a great VC. And I fundamentally disagree with that. I think investing and operating are different skill sets. And there are a lot of great investors who have just been investors their whole career. And so I think that's one thing that I think is bad advice. Yeah. Any of those pieces on like how to be a great VC, it's like, I don't know. I hate those because like there's literally no standard playbook to follow. It's like everybody's got a different path. Everybody can be like, you can follow your own route to be good at this job. Uh, but yeah, I, I totally agree with that. So next one we have in the last year, what new belief, behavior, habit has most improved your life? Also a tough one. I, I think a couple things inspired largely by COVID. One is just going on daily walks, like making sure to get out every day. And I live in the hate right next to Golden Gate Park. So I try and step out for a walk every single day and get some sunshine. And then another thing, which is a little more cliche, is just practicing gratitude. And COVID was tough for a lot of us who were all cooped up in the house. And so one thing I've, I've tried to do in a more substantive way is just practice gratitude and think about the things that I'm grateful for every day. Yeah, could always be worse. And never gone on a walk and not had like some type of thought pop into my head there's some connection there with like being outside of nature and thinking more clearly I think a lot of people should do that more no doubt next one aside from having to say no all the time what's the worst part about venture it's an extremely lonely job I think it's ironic because 
it's very social. I'm spending all day talking to people, but, and this might be related to saying no all day. <laughs> You're not really building any meaningful long-term relationships with people. And so I find it to be very lonely. There's not a lot of collaboration or teamwork. Yeah. I think that's like a thesis. We kind of, we rode the wave on that. I think that's why we were able to get some adoption within Confluence. Like a lot of these people were looking for some community of like-minded people that they don't have to say no to. And yeah, like pitching a, a group of vetted investors to them became easier sell for that exact reason. Next question we got, best piece of feedback for junior VCs or those aspiring to break into venture? I, I may have alluded to this earlier, but show don't tell, prove you can do the job without doing it. Like there, there are very few tools I have at my disposal as a professional VC that young people, young aspiring VCs don't have. And so I'd encourage them to think like a VC, act like a VC, put out content, research companies, do all the things that I do. And who knows, you can maybe, you know, make it big without the platform. Couldn't agree more. And then last one, who is a mentor that you'd want to give credit to? A couple of folks. One is my, my former mentor at Bessemer, Jeremy Levine, who you know, took a big chance on me and hired me out of school. And he's just an amazing guy and someone I, I look up to a lot as a human being. And the second is, is my colleague and mentor at Two Sigma, Vili Ilchev, who is just an amazing guy, has really lived the American dream in a lot of ways and continues to inspire me every day with the way he lives his life and, and his sort of conviction and drive as an investor. Good stuff. Good stuff. That wraps it up for me. I think that wraps it up for Quickfire. I know we ask a lot more questions than we initially sent over because we just had a bunch of follow-ups. We were just interested in what you're talking about, but this has been awesome. I feel like we got so much advice from this. Like I'm already thinking about different ways to apply some of the stuff that you talked about earlier, but yeah, this has been great, dude. Thanks again for coming I appreciate it. I appreciate it, Tyler and Clay. Thank you both. Thanks for having me and yeah. Look forward to being in touch. Huge thanks again to Vinay for coming on this week. We hope that each of you were able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to get in touch with Vinay, we've linked his social profiles within the description below. And you can also find his contact info within the Confluence BC directory. For next steps, if you're an investor and have not already signed up to join, we encourage you to check out our website at www.confluence.vc to submit your info to become a member. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to reach out directly either to Tyler at tyler at gpv.com or myself at clay at Hope to hear from you all soon.